I'm just curious. I can't um, walk past an interesting scene on public transport or at the shops or an interesting family dynamic or the aftermath of an argument without wondering what just happened. I'm lucky enough that my work provides me a way in which I can do that professionally without just seeming like a total creep and jerk. (laughs) My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Benjamin Law is a Chinese-Australian who grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland to immigrant parents from Hong Kong. He was one of five children uh, and is uh, now an author, a journalist and a screenwriter. He's openly gay and his books include The Family Law and Geisha, Adventures in the Queer East. Uh, He is somebody who lives life with a wonderful sense of passion and curiosity, who doesn't shy from the hard questions and whose story is, in some sense, the story of modern Australia. Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell me about how your parents landed in Caloundra, uh, the, same, <laughs> the same spot where my grandparents uh, ended, their, uh, their, ended, ended their days. Oh, that's um, so interesting. What, uh, what, 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 what drew them there? What drew my parents, Chinese immigrants who came via Hong Kong to the retirement capital of <laughs> Australia, which is known for its beaches and neither of my parents can swim? It's a question I've often asked myself. Um, so my mum was born in Malaysia. My dad was born in the south of China, so in Guangdong province. Uh, but they both ended up in Hong Kong in their, I guess, childhoods, their adolescence, and that's where they met, got married. And when they married, this young couple who barely knew each other, like looking back on that story, this is one of the things I find most jaw-dropping, that my parents married within a month or two of knowing each other. I mean, there's young love, but that's kind of ill thought out. Uh, They got married and my dad wanted to move out of Hong Kong because he knew he wanted to start a family with his young bride and he didn't want to do it in Hong Kong because Hong Kong has many things to offer, incredible food, shopping. It's not good for space. It's, you know, its population density is one of the most intense in the world and cost of living is very, very high. And he'd been to America and he'd been to Australia once each on his travels. And he really preferred Australia. He just thought it was far friendlier than um, America or at least the parts of America he had visited. And there was a lot of space, almost too much space. Uh, So he got married to my mum. She'd never been to Australia before. So not only was she taking a gamble with this man, she was taking a gamble with this country. And that she found herself, after landing on a Qantas flight, on the Sunshine Coast. Now, when you think of Hong Kong and you think of the Sunshine Coast, even now, (laughs) which is built, which is, you know, a a kind of more built centre. It's not necessarily regional. It's definitely not rural. But where she landed in Caloundra in the mid-1970s, I mean, she'll tell you now, she referred to it as a ghost town, partly because there was no one there and secondly because everyone was white. So uh, it was a huge kind of culture shock for her and the reason why they landed in that part of Australia 
is simply because there was an opportunity there. My dad had met someone who had a restaurant there. Mm. That meant they could hit the ground running when it came to work and work they did. And my mum became pregnant very quickly, worked right through her pregnancy in your classic Chinese takeaway food shop. Which my uh, my grandparents, Rolly and Jean, almost surely frequented. I imagine. They, they were inveterate travellers and uh, uh, lo- loved uh, trying new foods. Yeah, so. absolutely. Uh, and I think it was like the Chinese restaurant of Caloundra at that time, Sunny Village, which I think is still there. Yeah, lovely. Okay, well, they were on, my grandparents were on uh, 3rd Street in, uh, in oh. Caloundra, just up from the coals. I'm just like going uh, back in time. They would have they passed, crossed paths perhaps during that period. And now here we are. Do you think of yourself as having a happy childhood? Yeah, I had an incredibly happy childhood. And even though I, you know, I've written a memoir and gone on to write a book about an unhappy adolescence, childhood was fantastic. We had this terrific... I mean, part of it was because of timing as well, because the Sunshine Coast and the Queensland in which I was raised was right throughout the 80s. There was this big conversation about multiculturalism. Expo 88 was in Brisbane, so it was like the whole world had descended Mm. on Queensland. Um, I was one of the very, very few Asian or ethnic kids at all in a very Anglo school, in a very Anglo part of Australia. But that was kind of an asset for me. I mean, sure, some things were said that were maybe insensitive, but there wasn't any kind of blatant, nasty racism. And when there was, I could easily dismiss it because everyone else seemed to think it was ridiculous as well. I was the kid giving other kids chopstick lessons and stuff like that. Like you said, I was one one of five kids. So I was born with these natural allies. I'm the middle of five, which some people might think is unfortunate. But for me, it meant that I had two people taking care of me and two younger siblings that I could kind of take take care of. Um, My parents were really loving. I didn't have those classic Asian tiger parents pressuring me to become a surgeon at the age of 12 or a concert pianist at the age of six. Um, And as a result, I think we really kind of flourished in the way that my parents wanted us to. I think they would have preferred us to speak better Cantonese than how we ended up, but we integrated exceptionally well. And I went to a private school. It was a pretty privileged upbringing. And I think I only realise that now that I'm no longer a kid. How is your Cantonese now? Uh, Mama day, which means pretty average. (laughs) (laughs) I I understand conversational Cantonese. So when I get in a lift, I walk in the streets, people are talking Cantonese around me. I know exactly what they're saying. My mum speaks a combination of Cantonese and English to me and I speak in English back. Uh, similarly, she understands English very, very well, um, but she's, you know, most comfortable speaking Cantonese with some English thrown in there. And my dad's English is probably less confident, but he speaks both English and Cantonese to us. So it's a little right. bit of a melange. And one of the ways in which your family seems to bond is around breaking taboos. Uh, <laughs> for better or for worse. Showing each other the grossest YouTube videos you, oh, can, yeah. you can possibly find. Um, you have some extraordinary descriptions of uh, uh, your mother's account of giving birth, uh, yes. which uh, uh, would, uh, would, would, would make a surgeon blush. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so what is it about the way in which your family uses taboos as a, as a form of togetherness? I don't think we're e- ever conscious of of let's go discuss taboos because they're so thrilling to prod. But from an early age, as you said, Andrew, my my mum, because she had five kids, Mm. 
on our birthdays, she would recall very fondly and with horror the the story of how each of us were born in in deeply graphic detail, and we grew up with that as children. <laughs> um, when you when there are five kids, the kids kind of take over, and what do kids like talking about? All the rude stuff. So. Right. Your wobbly bits, poo, wee, bums, all the stuff that Andy Griffiths writes about, you know, kids are obsessed with. And because we completely overtook the adults in the household, (laughs) that was the stuff we kept talking about. We never really grew up out of that. Um, And I guess now that I work as a writer, you know, whether it's in my journalism or in my, um, you know, my storytelling, whether it's TV shows or I'm currently writing a play, those tend to be the stories that I'm most interested in, the ones that haven't been told. And sometimes to get those stories that haven't been told, you have to look at something that other people think is taboo and and kind of face it right on. So one of the one of the hats that I wear at the moment is I've got a back back page Q&A column for Good Weekend in the newspaper. And that's all about the six things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Death, sex, money, religion, your body and politics, which I actually find are the most interesting conversations. Do you have your own taboos? Are there things where you sort of hold, hold back? Mm. Particularly are there taboos that, that others mightn't have? I think I'm less comfortable talking about money. I think partly that's a cultural thing. I think Australians are quite averse in talking about money or at least personal finances, you know, outside of the more macro conversations of the economy, for instance, when it comes to talking about our debt, you know, Mm. the shame attached to that, how we save, people think that might be gauche. I think culturally I've absorbed that, but also my, my, my financial literacy is quite weak. So maybe that's another reason I tend to shy away from that. Um, I love talking about sex, but probably less comfortable talking about my own sex life. I'm that terrible person <laughs> over drinks that wants to know everything about about yours or the politics or the mechanics of, of sex. Um, whereas, you know, I have to respect the fact that my partner is, is a private person and I shouldn't violate his privacy. Um, and what else? I'm almost going through the whole list that I talked about, mm, right? Mm. <laughs> Everything. No, um, I think once you feel secure enough to be vulnerable with another conversation partner, you should be able to talk about most things and those are where the rewarding conversations come from. So, so far, the people that I've interviewed for this column have been really open with me um, or, that, or they take a pause and think about how they want to frame things yes. and... I, I hope to think that that helps them clarify their thoughts around what we're talking about too. So this uh, this whole thing about violating taboos, do you use that <laughs> with, uh, with with friends as well as with family? Is this, oh. is this an underutilised tool for, uh, for for bonding with people that we'd like to get to know better? To Bond, overshare? Bonding or repelling, <laughs> it, it depends on the person. I remember when I uh, left home. So in Queensland, we tend to graduate earlier at, at 17 rather than 18. And because my birthday's later, I spend that whole year outside of university as a 17 year old, um, just having conversations with people who were drunk when I wasn't able to get drunk. <laughs> and so, yeah, we'd go, we'd go into these conversations and sometimes I'd say something that would really take them back. And they're like, wow, Ben, the line is here and you're somewhere <laughs> several kilometers west of it. Whereas those were the conversations I liked having. Um, I think my sense of humour can be quite 
quite appalling. I, I think that's partly because of me, partly because of my family, partly because I grew up in Queensland. I, I live in Sydney now. Sometimes when I hear someone making a really wrong town joke, I'm like, you came from Queensland, did you? <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's that cultural aspect as well. But also I like, I, I, you know, I, I kind of can only tolerate so much small talk. If I'm going to have a conversation mm. with someone, I'd, I'd rather have it count you know, we're all dying on this planet and we're all running out of time. Why don't we have conversations that matter? Like this one right now, hopefully. Yes, I, I installed a, uh, a Google plugin uh, earlier this year which told me every time I opened the browser how many days I had left on the planet based on my age. That is grim. That uh, eventually, yeah, eventually it sort of, it, it didn't spur me to do more. I was wondering, it like, just what made does that me, do to your made, brain? made me nervous. Uh, yeah. so, so what had started with a sort of uh, a seize the moment kind of tendency uh, devolved very quickly into, oh my gosh, what did I do with that with yesterday? That really is a horrible digital version of a massive hourglass in your <laughs> office just ticking down to your imminent imminent demise. That's horrific. It, uh, it, it is. And uh, that was a useful, useful lesson for me. But uh, we, uh, we, we sort of left off on your early childhood there. Mm. And I suppose um, you, you did experience some, some pretty rough bullying as, uh, as, you, as you moved into adolescence. So tell me about... How, how that manifested? Well, I think things changed when I became a teenager for in a few ways. So on a personal level, my parents broke up when I was 12 years old and that's just when I had finished primary school and was going into high school. So my primary school years was defined by, you know, my parents being together. We were the perfect model family. My high school years were defined by my parents going through a deeply protracted uh, separation and finally divorce that lasted for five years. Perfect timing because those were the five years I was in high school. I was already an angsty teenager because it was the 1990s. And beyond that, the political climate in Queensland had switched. Um, Pauline Hanson uh, became a huge force in Queensland to the extent that even though her, her main, say, power base was in Ipswich where she mm, was situated, mm. um, she had a really strong following on the Sunshine Coast where I grew up to the point where parents would drive in with, you know, vans emblazoned with the One Nation logo. They were standing up for as One Nation candidates and even now with the resurgence of One Nation, I mean, the arguable resurgence of One Nation. Um, but, you know, when it comes to state politics, the head of One Nation is in Budrum, which is where I, which is where I went to school. So it kind of deeply conservative mm. place already and then became even more conservative along racial lines when One Nation really, really got its grip in. And so things started happening, like, for instance, um, people would start yelling at you outside of cars, um, there were some older teenagers at school who would start openly saying things that they probably would have kept inside prior. Um, there was a family friend of ours who was bashed at a petrol station, which was pretty confronting, and he was hospitalised for that. And even what seemed to be benign, more benign conversations with friends started taking strange, uncomfortable turns. For instance, the conversation that, you know, Hanson really started at the time, which was people who are Australian should all speak English. It's a conversation that's happening again now in 2018. Um, my grandmother's English is very, very poor. She doesn't, she doesn't speak English beyond, you know, happy boy, handsome boy, pretty girl. Um, and so I realised those conversations were about me and my family. So when I brought that up, they would say, oh, well, 
Ben, don't don't worry. Like we don't even see you as Asian, which is at the time something you take as a compliment because you you realise they intended d- yes. that to be a compliment. And it was only much later on that you think that is such a strange thing to say. You know, if yes. if you don't see me as Asian, which I clearly am, well, how do you? see me first of all because i'm not latino or caucasian and secondly what does that mean in terms of how you actually see asian people um so that became a kind of existential kind of fog in my mind you know who am i do i actually belong here if people see my face and race first and foremost how do i justify my existence in in this country and so that kind of politicised me because, you know, for the first time you start experiencing, um, you know, being at the local pool and kids holding your head down, for instance, because they think that it, that it's that it's a laugh because you're you're the little scrawny Chinese kid, and and you build a kind of an anger in you, which isn't which isn't a healthy thing, but um, those first flames of in- indignance start flaring up, which is great timing when you're a teenager because all teenagers are indignant about something um and this was this was my thing did you ever feel like a stranger in in australia um no in some ways because i had such a comfortable childhood and because i had my childhood mainly in the 1980s uh which was a very kind of celebratory multicultural decade at least where i was i think that sowed the seeds of me being very comfortable and probably if anything too entitled about my place in Australia. I mean, what are the what are the arguments you'd throw against me that that I wasn't born here? Well, I was born here, not that I think that's a prerequisite to Australianness. What are you going to throw at me that I don't speak English English properly? You know, I was that English nerd in, in school <laughs> who, who got prizes for speaking better than anyone else. So so I I always felt I had the you know the mental tools to mm. to reaffirm to myself that that I was that I that I had a place here at the same time that doesn't cancel out your own insecurities or anxieties about what makes for an authentic xyz because you know kids born on the margins whether you're a child of migrants or a migrant or perhaps you're a mixed race kid um you're always trying to scrabble around for authenticity. You know, yes. am I authentically Asian? Am I authentically Australian? And because there's not much representation of that in the media and the arts, which is where you got your stories in pre-internet age, um, there aren't really guiding lights to tell you, well, actually, you can be both of those things at once. Here's a person who is that and feels confident about that. I think we have those people now, but we didn't have them when I was growing up. Yes, absolutely. And the the experience of that time in schools must have been shifted. I remember there's a speech that Bill O'Chee, the mm. National Party senator, made on, on the floor of the Senate after the arrival of Hanson where he said something on the lines of Senator Hanson, uh, it is now coming up towards lunchtime in schools across uh, Queensland. There are migrant kids who are looking at the clock and they are scared because they know that when they go out into the playground they're going to be subject to racism. Mm. Uh, I was one of those kids and you are subjecting more of those kids to the sort of taunts that mm. uh, that, that, that I was subjected to. It was incredibly yeah. affecting and pow- powerful speech from a, from a, national, from a national party 
person. Mm. Uh, it sounds as though you didn't experience that to the same, same extent, but you've got a you've got a window into, in, yeah. into what that must have been like. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got an access point into it, but I'm lucky in that even though I can say maybe my teen years were kind of punctuated by mm-hmm. some instances of racism. Um, I wasn't defined by it in that period. That said, as I become older, I think the conversation is shifting towards identifying what's broadly called structural racism, which is a very different thing. I think Australia is very good at saying, you know, were you ever a victim of racism? Did people call you names on the streets? And if you haven't, then you haven't been a victim of racism. Whereas I think that's such an easy out, whereas... We still live in a society where you look at ANU studies about, you know, people with conspicuously Chinese names applying for a job and they get significantly fewer callbacks for it. You know, that's, that's my study. Oh, is it, wait a minute. Did, were you a part of that? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. I feel that's like, right. I feel like right. I'm, I'm a plant in your <laughs> podcast now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's wonderful. With uh, with Alison Boost and uh, that's Le- right. Yelena Baganova. I remember yes, hearing yes. Um, Alison's voice talking about the study um, on the radio. So I've always got her beautiful plummy voice. Oh, but, yes. But that was a co-study. It's such a, it's such a fantastic study because it really lifts the lid on hunches that people have but you can't confirm and it just for me seeing a study like that shows me kind of the value of you know academic rigor to prove hunches whether they're they're right or not anyway thank you yes. for thank you for doing that work by no, the way no no and hopefully someone listening to the podcast will replicate <laughs> it because uh, we're talking about a study that's now a decade old and it's yeah. really important to get more rock solid evidence on this we found that uh, the degree of racism towards people with non-Anglo names was lowest in Brisbane, then mm. Melbourne, then to, then worst in Sydney. Oh, that's so uh, interesting. And it'd be fascinating to uh, to see it again now as to whether that uh, ranking shifted. And interesting to follow up the, I don't know, the hunches and theories as to why those places in particular... Yes, exactly. Hard to distinguish underlying kind of racism from the fact that the Mm. Queensland economy was going gangbusters when we did that study. Yeah, right. Uh, We had, uh, uh, as we sent out the CVs, we were sending out four fake CVs and the Queensland economy was so hot that sometimes the first CV was getting a call back before we'd sent out the fourth one. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. (laughs) It was like a 10-minute period. No, it's really fantastic because sometimes I bring, obviously I need to cite it better, but I bring up data from that when I sometimes talk about diversity because Mm, diversity mm. sounds like such a cosmetic thing. Why don't we just include a few people and we'll all feel better about it? But I think the conversation needs to shift to, you know, who's been excluded historically, why, how do we change that? Um, And that study is particularly handy for starting that conversation. Oh, good. Uh, So... You 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 went through these experiences, which are you know way way worse than anything that uh, that I or uh, uh, most Anglo kids in Australian schools experienced. But at the same time, um, I think I also got off a lot better than a lot of other people who look like me growing up in my generation. Absolutely, but it didn't. It doesn't seem to have. Um, to have hardened you at all. You still have this extraordinarily uh, nuanced and sensitive approach to life. And one of the things that strikes me is that you're also looking for commonality with people who mm. are ideologically different. Uh, what do you put that down to? Is that is that something that your family gave you, that, that sense that you could look at the racism to which you were subjected and say, this doesn't prove that humanity is, is, is evil? 
because I grew up where I did, which is a very privileged part of Australia, but politically quite conservative, it's always interesting when people say, you know, you're someone with a tertiary education, you live in inner city Sydney, or at least I do now, and prior to that inner city Brisbane, um, you live in your own bubble. And that, that is true to an extent. But um, if you've been around Australia enough, or if you've grown up in a regional part of Australia, or if you do what I do for work, which is to have to travel around the country, you do get exposed to a lot of different people. And Twitter is kind of a, a landmine in terms of you meet someone who's ideologically different to you and all you're going to get from them is is just text, mm. you know, and it's and it's and it's and it's warfare. Whereas you sit down with people and even if you vote very differently to me, you 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 see the world very differently to me. I find it very, very difficult not to find common ground with people eventually if you sit face to face with them after a while, um, which is something I need to remind myself of when I'm on Twitter and going into warfare. But I think it, it is that fundamental curiosity that probably as a kid was called busybodiness that has fueled me. I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious. I can't um, walk past an interesting scene on public transport or at the shops or an interesting family dynamic or the aftermath of an argument without wondering what just happened, <laughs> you know, or what that family is or what that woman or man's story is. Um, I'm lucky enough that my work provides me a way in which I can do that professionally without just seeming like a total creep and jerk <laughs> by asking them questions. Um and, and certainly in my own life, I know there are people very, very close to me that hold different, very different political views mm. to me um, and they are fundamentally good and have treated me decently in the whole period in which I've known them. That doesn't mean um, that those fundamental disagreements won't, won't be there, but I'm sure that if I even sat down with some of my worst twitter enemies i know that if we shared a meal we'd probably find something to laugh at which is scary in one way mm. but kind of hope hopefully hopeful in an, in another um yeah there there are some things that um you know once once you actually do share a meal or spend face-to-face -face time with people there there is common ground i usually find what meal would you share? What are your favorite? <laughs> what are your favorite Cantonese dishes? Um, look, I've just mastered. I've just mastered wonton making, which is which was way easier than I thought. I, I remember trying to make them as kids and as as a kid and thinking it was very very difficult. But um, yeah, there's there's something. I, I think it's almost like you you know you talk about intergenerational things that you inherit um, without necessarily even being exposed to it. My my father's a restaurateur. My mother is the daughter of a restaurateur. Food kind of defines our family without even identifying it as food defines our family. It was just something that was always there. Mm -hmm. um, so recently I had a, a friend who, who lost someone very close to her. We were filling up her deep freezer with things and I just made on a wonton – I just went on a wonton-making journey. Um, I'm getting into – I think there's something instinctive in me that needs to hoard for the winter. So I've started pickling and fermenting food a lot. 
What so do you what do you pickle? I well just you know um, what have I just pickled recently? Just cucumbers, like Lebanese cucumbers. I'm making kimchi at the moment. I'm nearly onto my fifth batch, and I know I'm going to perfect it with the fifth batch. I know what it needs now. Uh, so there's that kind of stuff that goes on. So I wonder if I've inherited there's some kind of ancestral muscle memory going on there. But even you know beyond Cantonese and and pan asian cuisine one of the big journeys journeys that i went on the last couple of years was making sourdough bread so which is you know arguably the the whitest food you know it's it's not just bread it's the fancy bread um but i cracked it and i was very very proud of myself it was like boss level baking i burnt myself a couple of times but i got there and your uh, your, your other huge passion in life seems to be writing yeah. when did you first know you wanted to become a writer I didn't for a really long time. Um, when I was a kid, I knew what I wanted to be and that was an actor on Home and Away. I don't know why I had this idea <laughs> in my head. And if you had met me as a kid, um, you know, especially... To Palm Beach. Absolutely. But when, you, when you, you look at photos of me at the time when I held that dream so close to my heart, I had such severe blooms of acne. I was covered in orthodontia. And of course I was Asian. There was not one Asian character in Home and Away. But for some reason I just thought I could absolutely do it. Went to extracurricular acting classes, went to auditions, got none of the roles, uh, had total stars in my eyes. Um, And then I even auditioned to get into the university courses. Like there was a QUT course that was the equivalent of like NIDA, Queensland NIDA. Um, Didn't get into that. And then... I thought, well, one of the things I really do love at this stage and age of my life is um, magazines. So pre-internet era, dial-up modems were only becoming a thing in the last couple of years of school. I was total. I totally fed myself um, on Rolling Stone and Juice magazine and HQ magazine, many magazines that don't exist anymore. British magazines like The Face and Q magazine gave, you know, this suburban coastal boy this access point to to London and Spin magazine gave me access points to, like, the New York music scene and Rolling Stone, even though I essentially read it for the music articles, they published, like, great pieces of science and political journalism and I thought, look, I love reading that stuff. I wonder what it would be like to try to write it. And so that's what I really focused on at university and I turned my focus there and I found that I really liked it. I think I realised I wasn't a good actor and was never going to be. And then, you know, of course, later in life when I really embraced writing and it's all I really want to do with my life now and knowing a lot of friends who are professional actors and seeing the facilities that they have that I definitely don't and never will have, I've, I've... I'm very lucky that I've landed in the place that I have. Do you ever experience writer's block and do you have techniques to tackle it or yeah. do the words just flow for you? No, I think writers who just say, oh, it's just so easy, I just sit or stand at my desk and the words just come out. I just I just wonder if they've got the literary equivalent of diarrhoea and it's actually a medical problem <laughs> that, they need, that they need treated. Um, writing isn't isn't easy because every time you write something new it is a slightly different job every time um so yeah i do encounter writer's block and it usually comes when i've simply spent too much time in front of the computer and i don't really know what i'm looking at anymore 
And so to combat that, I move my body, which is, you know, if, if my teenage self could listen to this now, they'd be like, what, you exercise now? Would just look at me with disdain and disgust. Um, but, you know, you and I work in jobs that requires us to be sedentary for long periods. Um, and for me, that is working your brain over time while your body doesn't move. And so I've realized now that I need to do the opposite mm. as a circuit breaker, which is to move my body so much that my brain conks out. And, and I do find whether I'm at the gym or I swim a lot um, or if I'm doing yoga, which are my main three forms of exercise at the moment, but mainly swimming, um, my mind just goes blank. And often it's mid-lap that I'll realise what the connection between these two characters are that I'm playing with or the next person I need to interview to get that really good, really good grab that I need or the connections will happen because my brain's been able to actually be rested. So it's a very strange... I know I sound like Michelle Bridges or something from The Biggest Loser, but I, I often tell writers, move, move your body. It will help your, it will help your craft. How are you finding moving into the realms of fiction with your, the play that you're working on? Ah, okay. So this is relatively new. I feel like it's been a slow transition because I've always written non-fiction, whether it's memoir or journalism or my columns. Then writing The Family Law, which is the TV show on SBS that's inspired by my memoir, that is fictional because it's inspired by my family, but it's set in present day rather than the past. There are so many things that happen in the show that didn't happen in real life, but we're trying to get to emotional truths of things that happened to, to me or the, the other writers that I work with. Um, so already that was kind of veering into a fictional world. And even now with a play that I've been asked to write for the Melbourne Theatre Company, and I've never written a play before. I see a lot of theatre, but I've never written a play. Um, it is inspired by things that I know. I can't write things that I don't have a starting point with in real life. Um, and so my initial instinct from journalism training is to do a lot of research about the real world thing that, that I'm trying to write about in the play, and then I form character and plot around that. It, it's fun but a little bit nerve-wracking because I, now I'm too used to the TV model where I've got a lot of people around me and my producer's feeding in ideas or, or my co-writer's telling me where I've gone wrong. Um, this will be by myself but, of course, Melbourne Theatre Company has good staff that will steer me in the right direction too. It's an extraordinary opportunity for a first-time playwright. I mean, many, many other first-time playwrights would give their right arm to have I, a, I, an like MP, MTC work you, with them. You should punch me in the face to get the grin off my face. And people should punch me in the face. It's, 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 extra <laughs> it's an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, so we've uh, we've barely touched on your sexuality, and, uh, mm, and that feels like we'll it's do it right here, right now. Exactly, it feels like <laughs> it's kind of an omission, um, not because you're gay, but because this is a significant part of who you are and who mm. you're writing. I mean, let's face it, you have a book called Geisha. Yes. Uh, so, but but you, when you were growing up, am I right in thinking that homosexuality was still illegal in Queensland for for a big part of my childhood? So it was the last mainland state to decriminalise homosexuality, and I don't remember if you know the 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 bill was declared and when it was passed, but it was essentially 1990 when, when homosexuality was decriminalised in the state of Queensland. So I would have been eight years old and listening to a lot of the discussion mm. a, around that at the time. And just because the laws change doesn't mean attitudes 
do. So being gay in the schoolyard was definitely the, the worst thing you could be throughout my school life. And I wouldn't have ever dreamed of, you know, I wouldn't have fathomed what it looked like to, to come out as gay in my, in my teen years. It was the first thing I did when I left school couldn't wait <laughs> and I needed to be upfront with my my mom about who I was before I left home um, but it was a even though I don't think you know I don't actively think about my sexuality it's just it's braided into who I am as much as you know our, our, our gender our family our, our work you know they aren't compartmentalized they all bleed into each other it's one part of me that's like that um, but it was really the thing that I, I think I, I wrestled with most when I was growing up. At what stage did you feel like that wrestling had ended? Probably when I told my mum. She wasn't the first person I told. The first person I told was my best friend um, at the time and that was so scary. Like I really feel for that 17-year-old kid who, who did that. But I also want to congratulate him. Like, well done, you did it. Um, wasn't necessarily the most cinematic coming out. It was very, you know, a lot of ugly crying and stuff like that. But that gave me the confidence that if one person was okay with it, someone else might be as well. And my mum definitely definitely was she was very very supportive and so was my dad when i came out to him uh years he was later the last person in the family he was the last him. he was the last person to know poor guy he really made a point of it as well he he was just like does your mum know yes does your older sister know yes and he went through all of my siblings <laughs> <laughs> um but they were they were extraordinarily supportive and to the point where my partner and his mother have Christmas with my family and I and in fact my my partner's mother has put on family a uh, family Christmas for us before um, but that wrestling did probably end when I got to tell my mom you know I'm gay and when I think back on it I guess in some ways she was the only person who mattered if she was okay with it, I could probably deal with anyone else's poor reactions. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I've never articulated it to myself like that before. But um, looking back, uh, you know, and I have and I have had strange experiences about disclosing my sexuality to people. But but mum's fine with it. I'm fine with it. That's all that really matters. And then of course my siblings are all great with it. Um, and so I've always had that support base. I've been far luckier than say other extended families of my extended family members um friends um but that that fear of having to do this incredibly brave thing by yourself when you're at an age where you're deeply vulnerable is something that i find uh, people in the lgbtiq community have a kinship with each other over because our experiences are vastly different um, obviously that acronym is quite unwieldy, so of course our experiences are very different and even within the G of that acronym, our experiences are wildly different as well. But, but that is one thing that we can, all, um, we can all relate to. If your 17-year-old self was here in the room with mm. us today about to, about to go through that tough conversation oh, with guy. his best friend, is there a bit of advice you'd give him? Well, one, reassurance rather than advice. He, he was already on the path with knowing what he needed to do. He just really needed to pull the Band-Aid and he, and he did. Um, so it would have been more reassurance. I think um, 
you know, the 17-year-old Ben probably needed advice beyond just discussions about his sexuality. Like, you know, the acne medication you've been considering, maybe get on it sooner rather rather than <laughs> later because it's not going away by itself and Clearasil doesn't fix it. Um, and other advice like you know you you don't need to be an actor to get to get attention you'll find other ways to get attention and notoriety later in life um and also maybe you know don't don't doubt your your mum so much and maybe treat her a bit better as well we could all probably do with treating Mm. our mothers a little better when we're uh, teenagers i think so um, so, Ben, let me uh, wrap up by asking you a couple of standard questions oh, sure. to ask all my interviewees. Um, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe in – well, I used to believe in God, but that was way when I was a much younger child and because I went to a school where they, you know, taught religion deep, very robustly alongside science and English. And so, you know, as a kid I'd come home and say, guys, we're going to hell <laughs> – we probably need to be baptised. But then I think in maybe it was the way that religion was also taught at my school. That was something I backed off away from. But I haven't – I'm not one of those hardline atheists either. I think for me as a writer who sometimes works as a journalist, I have more questions than answers. So that's probably why I've steered away from that. I used to believe I was very smart. But I think as time goes on uh, – All I can feel is kind of a niggling shame at how little I actually know. And as time goes on, if anything, even though I know intellectually I'm absorbing more information, so mathematically I must be getting smarter, I also feel that is completely countered by the growing awareness of how little I know about the world and how it works and basic things I should have learned years ago. Like like the economy, this is a conversation that we can probably have a conversation on for a different podcast. But but, um, I I feel kind of both smarter but more panoramically more stupid as I as I get older. So I don't think I'm very smart anymore. Well, there's an Einstein observation along those lines <laughs> that uh, the more he learns, the more he realises he uh, he doesn't doesn't know. Yeah. So there's a there's a humility I think which comes which uh, with understanding mm. areas more deeply. Uh, when are you most happy? I've realised I'm actually pretty low maintenance as as a guy and I know that seems like I'm kind of, you know, puffing myself up there but I, I tend to surround myself with high maintenance people who I very much love and they're like, wow, you don't really need much. I think I'm the succulent of the plant world. You just, you just put me there, sometimes water me, should be okay. All I need to be happy is um, a body of water to swim in so it's good that I live in Sydney at the moment because it's a terrific swimming city. I need a Do you have a favourite pool that you swim in in oh, Sydney? Too many. I've got a hashtag. I've got a hashtag on Instagram called Lap Pools of Australia where I document where I swim. But North Sydney Olympic under the bridge, yes. that's incredible. Bondi Icebergs, obviously. Andrew Boyle Charton, it's like crazy that there's a swimming pool that looks like a resort pool in the middle of the Botanical Gardens. Um, Prince Alfred Park, which is my local pool, which architecturally is just beautiful. It's like built into a hill. It's like a, a hobbit's pool. Um, oh, there, there are too many pools that I love in this city. Do you Andrew. swim in the ocean? I do. Um, and I, I've only started doing that in the last three years. Um, I set myself a challenge to swim the cold classic. I've, I was a notoriously weak swimmer. 
as a kid, I couldn't swim 50 metres without holding onto a lane rope. And so Cole's two kilometres. Cole's one, two or five. Right. And it was a struggle for me to, to even complete the one. So that's my yearly challenge. I still need to build up my body to do the one. I think maybe later I might try the two, but that's a bit of an ask right now. But yeah, I did an ocean swimming course to one, build my confidence and mm. two, learn how to do that. I can identify a rip now, which I think we should have been taught when we were much younger, to be <laughs> honest. It's a useful survival skill. Yes. Uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I take time away from the computer. I, because I'm a freelancer and I've probably absorbed my father's alcohol, uh, not alcohol, my father's workaholism through osmosis, uh, I... I know that I have trouble getting stepping away from work, so I do that. I kind of when my when my iPhone screen goes yellow, you know that kind of thing where it's like it's sleep time now. I've set it to ten o'clock, and that's when I'm I need to tell myself work's over. I try to exercise most days, which is strange. I mean, it's 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 my it's my rhythm now. But in my twenties, I didn't exercise. Like for most of my twenties, I don't think I really exercised at all. Um, so now that it's an almost daily routine, um, it really helps me. But I think previous incarnations of myself would be horrified. And I do have a routine now where at my peak phone social media use, I would just take my phone to bed like a lover, which I realise is deeply unhealthy. So now... If Particularly I'm, if one has a lover in the bed. Exactly, exactly. So now I put my phone in the charger, I set my alarm, I then have my shower... And I go into bed without looking at my phone and I start reading from 10 o'clock. This sounds very regimented, I know, but it, it just ensures, one, that I'm reading and two, that I'm in a good headspace to, mm, to get to mm. sleep. So I always have to finish off um, with a book and I find that's really important for me to transition to, to sleep. Otherwise, there are too many things ticking on in my mind. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes. Um, I am a huge fan of a, a terrible – well, it's not terrible. It's actually quite amazing TV franchise, the Real Housewives franchise. Um, oh, no. The Real Housewives of Melbourne. Before I got into it, I just thought, why would anyone watch this – and then because I was working for the same production company that makes the show, I was working in the scripted department. I had friends working in the factual department who write – who write and producer of Housewives, they were telling me about the show. I'm like, okay, cool. I don't want to be a snob. This is one of my things. I don't want to be a snob. This is your work. I'm going to watch water. It was like it was like stepping off. You know when you're walking off the off the shelf of a reef and you think, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's low tide, it's fine, and then you just step over and you just sink. You just <laughs> sink to the bottom of the sea. So you binge-watched. That's what my Real Housewives experience is like. And the way that I sell it to people is... Look, it's um, a harrowing comedy docudrama about about the one percent and disaster capitalism. That's how you should watch it. <laughs> which is a perfect segue into my <laughs> final question: um, Which person, Benjamin Law, has most shaped your view of living a, ha a healthy and ethical life? Oh, Gina Liano from The Real Housewives. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, obviously, my parents have been a huge influence. 
in terms of my values, how I place value on my education, for instance, not taking that sort of stuff for granted. Those old school Asian family values are, are very much a part of me. So, you know, spending a Christmas away from family would just be a huge transgression from me, yeah. for, for me. Um, but in terms of like now who I am in my 30s, my partner, Scott, he's like one of the most decent people I know. He, he studied journalism at university, but he also studied anthropology and philosophy. And so he loves a good, deep and meaningful. And he's a, very good in a crisis and very good um, for a wrestle or an argument. And I think one of the reasons why our relationship has lasted so long is if I start an argument, he's less offended and more interested in why I feel that way, which I found so deeply annoying when we first started going out. But now I realise that's an excellent response to have, which is to say, well, well why, do you, why do you feel like that? Can we, can we just explore that a little bit further? <laughs> um, so... Through those conversations, I think he's helped shape how I see the world. So you have no sense of taboos and he has no sense of outrage. And yeah. Together you're able to uh, engage in a space where most uh, most couples might be shocked or horrified. Yeah. And, I mean, look, he's capable of outrage. He's definitely capable of outrage. But then he wants to explore beyond the emotion yes. what's actually happening here, which I think is a good way to live. Yes, that ability to... Go to the balcony. It can be pretty healthy in a lot of situations. Well, Benjamin Law, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak on the Good Life podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.